we are exposed to millions of microorganisms every day, but we don't fall sick that often. It is because our immune system is working hard in the background to keep us safe, without us even knowing it. We will discuss how this happens in this podcast. Stay tuned. Hello everyone, welcome to Antibodies. Today we are back with the second part of the gene rearrangement in B-cells episode. If you haven't listened to the first part yet, I highly recommend that you go back and listen because a lot of things that we'll talk about do stem from the first episode. Joining me today is Natalie. Hello. Hi. Natalie, I'm very excited to talk about this experiment. I mean, this uh, episode, (laughs) because a lot of these things are some things that I keep forgetting every six months or 12 months. So it would be personally beneficial for me to listen to this episode and refresh my memory, because this part is honestly very complicated unless you directly work on it. Oh, oh my God, I, I found our joke is that you keep forgetting all this, but the whole point of, of, a, of a B cell is that now now you'll have memory B cells. Oh yeah, it's irony, <laughs> irony, so much irony. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, right before we start talking about the mechanisms of VDJ rearrangement, Natalie, can you give us a quick uh, review? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so uh, we talked a lot about uh, diversity in both the TCR, which is a T-cell receptor, and the BCR, which is the B-cell receptor, which will become the antibody, um, and how the whole purpose of rearrangement is to increase diversity in the repertoire of T and B-cells. This is Diversity is really important to tackle all of the different kinds of antigens that you may ever encounter in your life, including brand new, brand new ones that you, know, you could synthesize in a lab today or that might just reemerge, like COVID antigens, for example. There are theoretically 10 to the 12th, that's a trillion plus different kinds of TCR and BCR. Additionally, in the last episode, we covered something called the uh, Dreyer-Bennett hypothesis. We also went over the history of that hypothesis. Um, Scientists used to think that each individual BCR and uh, also the antibody, because they're you know, kind of the same thing, was encoded by one gene each. And this was all in our germline DNA. But I mean, that would mean you'd have like a gazillion genes. So obviously that theory had problems. It would be impossible for that much genetic material to fit into our genome because we have, you know, less than 30,000 genes. So that doesn't make sense. Uh, two scientists named William Drenner and Claude Bennett proposed uh, this new hypothesis that there's actually genetic recombination taking place in somatic cells. So that way, a variety of different genes encoding antibodies uh, could just come together in various ways to produce diversity, kind of like how you can wear the same pants with different shirts or whatever and produce many different outfits. Uh, Lastly, we talked about the excision of genes that don't recombine. So um, a key part of genetic recombination is you have these V, D, and J segments, which we discussed last time, and you only need one V, D, and J gene coming together to form the antibody heavy chain. Uh, But what's even more important, and we're going to keep talking about, is that there's a lot of editing happening that cuts out various V, D, and G genes that are still present in the DNA, but uh, do not get made into our final heavy chain antibody. This ensures that a fully functional antibody contains only one of each gene segment and not more, which, you know, could alter the antibody entirely. So uh, before we move on, we should probably go over nomenclature really fast. Um, The name of the antibody 
is derived from the constant regions of the heavy uh, chain and the light chain, with the heavy chain being dominant in the naming scheme. So uh, if you have an antibody with a gamma heavy chain, this is called IgG. Uh, if the light chain constant region is also known, uh, more often than not, it's kappa, you could call this antibody an IgG with a kappa light chain. For this episode, we won't talk about um, rearrangement of the constant region because that takes a lot of, uh, that takes place uh, after the bone marrow, it takes place in the antigen dependent phase of B cell development. Um, also, gene rearrangement is often termed VDJ recombination because the variable region of the heavy chain has V, D, and J genes that are recombined in this process. Uh, for the light chain, it's called VJ recombination because you only have the V and J genes, there's no D. Um, in B cells, the VDJ recombination is the first step of generation of a functional B cell receptor in the bone marrow since the heavy chain is generated first. When you have a situation where genes are being rearranged so much, there needs to be a type of policing and very strict rules to make sure that the VD and J genes are being glued together properly only to each other and not to an unrelated gene. Natalie, what would happen if there is no strict policy and random genes could get recombined during this process of VDJ re recombination? No, it happens and it can lead to uh, cancers. It can also uh, lead to immune dysfunctions. Could it also so, lead to the B cell dying eventually, like not being matured? I mean, that's that's the hope that if you if you do cut something together wrong, that uh, that B cell will be told to just go die, right? <laughs> and not go proliferate into an ugly lymphoma or something like that. But, um, anyway, so for this regulatory purpose, we would need an enzyme that can specifically recognize DNA sequences specific to this recombination process. Um, one set of these enzymes, uh, we call them the RAG enzymes, which are the recombination activating genes. Uh, the RAG enzymes begin the process of gene rearrangement um, in, a, in a really interesting fashion. Um, for simplicity, let's just look at the light chain rearrangement because you only have V and J that are being recombined. So it's like more easy to imagine. Uh, once you understand how the VJ uh, segments are combined together, you can apply this process to the heavy chain where it's gonna happen for the VD and then the VDJ regions to come together. Thanks a lot for that overview, Natalie. So I'm gonna talk about the steps right from the existence of these three uh, individual genes or set of genes in different places and how they come together into a single coding segment. The first step is the recognition of RSS, a very important term that you need to know if you are supposed to know about VDJ recombination. The RSS is, stands for the recognition signal sequences. The RSS is recognized by RAG enzymes and the RSS is somewhat conserved DNA sequence that appears upstream and downstream of certain VDJ genes. Wait, what, what's conserved DNA sequence over not conserved? So a conserved DNA sequence is something that has same or the similar nucleotides present every time you look at it. Or compared across to, organisms? Yeah, could be across organisms, could be, yeah, could be across different species as well. And a lot of conserved DNA sequences are actually the basis of how we taxonomically uh, identify or cluster organisms together. In this case, this conserved DNA sequence, the RSS, is being used as a recognition site for the RAG enzymes to do their job. It is to be noted that these RSS are introns. They do not code for anything 
these sequences consist of three elements. The RSS itself consists of three different elements. First, a conserved heptamer or a seven base pair sequence. Then there is a conserved nonamer or a nine base pair sequence. And then there is a non-conserved spacer that separates the heptamer and nonamer. The spacer sequence can be either 12 base pair long or 23 base pair long. And this gives rise to two varieties of the RSS sequence, the 12 spacer RSS and a 23 spacer RSS. The interesting fact here is that the RAG enzymes can bring the 12 and 23 RSS sites together in the three dimensional space. This is called the 1223 rule. Imagine this. We have a long piece of double-stranded DNA. The RAG enzymes recognize the 12 and 12 RSS, 23 RSS sequences somewhere far apart on this double-stranded DNA. The enzyme is going to fold the sequences together so that they're not at, they're not touching each other almost in the three-dimensional space. As you bring the two points together, it'll give rise to a loop consisting of all the DNA sequences between those two RSS. And here's the interesting part. This 12 and 23 spacer pairing forms the basis of VDJ recombination. For example, in the heavy chain, the V genes have the 23 spacer RSS downstream. The D genes have 12 spacer both upstream and downstream. And the J genes have a 23 spacer upstream. This allows the recombination of a V with a D and then a D with a J. So you end up with a VDJ always and not a V with another V or a J with another J in the heavy chain because they just don't have the complementary RSS spacers. Wait, what's the problem if you get a V gene recombining with another V gene? That is an interesting question. I think that this process is meant to conserve the molecular weight of the antibody. Each segment, the V, D, and J have different lengths. When they combine and eventually form a protein, we get an approximately 150 kilodalton molecular weight of antibody. However, if a V segment was to combine with another V segment, let's say we may get a different sized protein and it may affect how the antibody works, it could change its chemistry and probably the effector functions too. Different shape, different function, different yeah. size, different function. That's actually, that is the basis of how different isotypes work, which we will, ex will yeah. We, yeah, we may talk about that in a future episode. So similar differences appear in the RSS of the V and J segments of the light chains that allow them to be recombined to each other. Overall, the RSS intronic sequences give this process the specificity. So everything in, the, in this way, it occurs in the way it's supposed to. Natalie, have you ever wondered, reading this part in the books, how these scientists think that there is a conserved sequence? When you look at this whole jumbled ATGCs, who's going to look there for conserved sequences? I wouldn't. I would just, <laughs> I would just not look at this this kind of thing as a pattern. <laughs> I don't know. They're probably nerds. And yeah, uh, you know. it's it's just very. Fascinating for me that somebody looked at downstream of each gene and thought that, oh, that seven base pair and those nine base pairs seem to be conserved. Like you have to have <laughs> a, a lot of free time and a willpower 
to spend and it sequencing on, data and sequencing which, data this is like the 80s like <laughs> yeah oh reliable sequencing data what if we have a sequencer that's just randomly changing base pairs and it's messing up with your your interpretations yeah <laughs> all right here is a cool fact since rag enzymes are indispensable for the recognition of the rss sequences and are required for the formation of a functional b cell receptor and t cell receptor Knocking out the RAG genes can make an organism devoid of all T and B cells. Such knockout animals serve as models for immunodeficiency. This and this ends the first step that we call the recognition of the RSS. With that, we can move on to the next step. Now that the RAG enzymes have brought the two genes together, it looks like a four four strands of DNA pinched together with a loop hanging away from the pinched side. I'm going to need a, a lot of imagination from our listeners here because this is a, really a thing that you would only understand when you have a figure in front of you. And even with figures, it can be difficult. <laughs> I'm going to omit some of the chemistry involved here to simplify the process. The RAG enzyme or enzymes it cut the single strands such that we end up with three hairpins. It may be confusing to visualize how we would be ending up with three hairpins, so let me help you. Imagine this. There are two sets of double-stranded DNA running parallel once the RAG enzyme has brought them together. So that is four single-stranded DNA. Let's name the four strands as number one, two, three, and four from top to bottom. Now, cut the single strands into, uh, into, two, uh, into two, each strand into two individually, such that you end up with eight single strands. One to four on the left side, five to eight on the right side. Join strand one with two, join strand three with four at their broken ends. This will look like hairpins. These are the two gene segments that were brought together and have formed their individual hairpins. That leaves us with strands 5 to 8 on the right side. They will form a large double-stranded hairpin as you join strand 5 with 6 and 7 with 8. This is how we end up with the three hairpins. Two single-stranded hairpins and one double-stranded hairpin. The double-stranded DNA segment will probably be removed and we call this removed DNA segment an excision circle. This excision circle can be seen in developing B cells and researchers often use them to identify a B cell that has undergone VDJ recombination. For now, let's forget about the excision circle and just focus on the two hairpins we have formed from the two gene segments. Clearly, the two hairpins from the two genes are of no use to the cell. The cell will need these to be joined together into a double strand before they can be transcribed into RNA. Here comes the next enzyme in our list, the Artemis. Artemis is an endonuclease that cuts two hairpins such that they are single-stranded again. The Artemis works with several enzymes, so let's call this complex of Artemis and his friends the Artemis complex. The Artemis complex could, one, either cut the hairpins symmetrically such that the two strands of the hairpin are the same length, or it could cut them asymmetrically such that the two strands are unequal 
in length. If the cut is asymmetric, the overhanging strand, that is the longer strand out of the, one, the, the ones that cut, will have some palindromic nucleotides there. And these nucleotides are called p-nucleotides and they can add variability to the light and heavy chain genes. Wait, why do you call them palindromic? Generally, a palindrome is a word that stays the same even if spelled backwards. However, like race car. Mm, yeah, a race car. Taco cat. Taco cat. <laughs> <laughs> However, in genetics, a palindromic sequence is the one whose complementary sequence is the same as the template when read from 5 to 3 prime. When Artemis cuts the hairpin asymmetrically, it's to be noted that the hairpin right now is actually the template strand combined to its own complementary strand, the uh, the coding strand. So when Artemis cuts the hairpin asymmetrically, it is cutting such that the part of the complementary strand that was previously base paired is now just linearly attached with the phosphodiester bond as if it's the same strand. So if you were to construct a complementary strand to this, it would result in a palindromic sequence. This is the reason we call these extra nucleotides derived from the complementary part of the hairpin, the p-nucleotides. Note that they are not added by any enzyme and they just happen to be cut away from the complementary strand of the hairpin. In the next step, the non-homologous end-joining enzymes come in the picture and join the two double strands together. Now I've got these two double strands that used to be hairpins but now have been cut away by the Artemis. The non-homologous end-joining enzymes will do the repair part. Wait, um, could you explain non-homologous end-joining please? Yeah, it's a type of DNA repair that sticks broken ends together without needing a homologous chromosome to provide a template. It is the most common type of DNA repair. At this step, you've got the V and the G J genes of the light chain attached together. Similar process will happen for the VD and the DJ in the heavy chain. This almost ends the process of recombination. Oh. Uh, cool. Uh, should, Just, uh, should I, Natalie, can you tell us how this process generates diversity and are there any steps I may have missed that also generate diversity? Well, uh, sure. Let's go over everywhere where diversity comes from in this process. So first VDJ recombination itself, we have 44 variable, 27 diversity and six joining gene segments altogether. So they can be arranged in any combination um, to form the full heavy chain variable region of an antibody. So just this alone gives rise to tremendous amount of diversity by being able to combine them together in so many different ways. So from just those segments, you could theoretically have more than 5,000 different ways that the VDJ can come together. Then after that, you've got the fact that you're rearranging not just the heavy chain, but also the light chain because now, remember, your light chains themselves recombine V and J segments. Uh, both the kappa and the lambda light chains do this. So an antibody is only fully formed and functional when the heavy chain and the light chain make a pair. So now, including the light chain, which has many V segments, many J segments, and as well as possibly being kappa or lambda, um, you're increasing the number of unique antibodies up to 10 to the 6, which is a million. 
And then even further, there's something called junctional diversity. So the diversity is increased even further when you consider that, you know, you have nucleotide changes introduced in the process of joining the gene segments together. So let's say, you know, you got one B cell and they join together, oh, V segment 25 with D11, and then they have their joining nucleotides regions to make the antibody. But the second B cell in the same person can also join V25 with D11 and add completely different nucleotides. Uh, now you might think, oh, that's not a big, big deal. It's just like a couple of nucleotides. The V and the D are still the same. But actually, now that there's nucleotides in between have changed the final product because translated protein will be different. You're, you could be potentially adding other amino acids. The nucleotides that join two gene segments in a heavy chain together are called the P nucleotides. And there's also N nucleotides. And these are just named the way depending on how they were added or if they were present at the beginning. So Jatin explained P nucleotides a bit already and how they appear due to like the asymmetric cutting by Artemis. P nucleotides are derived from the template strand. So let me explain a little bit about these uh, so-called N nucleotides. These nucleotides are added by an enzyme called TDT or terminal deoxynucleotidal oh, transferase. Let me try that one again. Terminal deoxynucleotidal transferase. Oh my God. You got you that, get that you got one? That. Okay, okay. <laughs> so TDT, when the junction between the two gene segments will get cut up by the Artemis. Jatin didn't talk about this step because it is almost exclusive to heavy chain and happens after the Artemis complex cuts the chain. So TDT is a DNA polymerase and part of the NHEJ pathway, uh, which is a non-homologous end joining, and it helps to join together broken DNA pieces. What's funny about TDT is that it's kind of, uh, I wouldn't say stupid, uh, scientists call it unfaithful. So normally we would expect polymerases to follow the template strand and add nucleotides accordingly, but TDT doesn't always do that. It can actually add mismatched nucleotides, technically called non-templated nucleotides, which forces DNA re repair machinery to come in and fix its mess. So these non-templated nucleotides are called N-nucleotides. Normally, it would be kind of scary to think that you have a polymerase just coming along and adding random stretches of DNA that's like not based on anything. But in the case of B-cells, this process is actually helping to add diversity in the VDJ or, VD or VJ sequences. Since TDT is, uh, you know, stupid and sucks at its job, um, which non-templated nucleotide is added is completely random. So it will be different in two B cells joining the same V and J together. This adds even an additional layer of diversity. So now considering junctional diversity, this adds the number of possible, you know, theoretical uh, unique antibodies we can make up all the way to 10 to the 13th possible different combinations. Whoa, that's a lot of combinations. I'll add a very slight information here that TDT, apart from being stupid or unfaithful, is also <laughs> has also a cool property which allows it to add de novo nucleotides. And by that, let's look at general DNA polymerase that we talk about. They require a primer to guide where they should be adding new nucleot nucleotides. They need a complementary yeah. strand to help them. But TDT can add nucleotides, nucleotides at the edge of a DNA sequence without needing anything. So that's another way how it's using its stupidity to add random nucleotides at 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 a edge of the broken strand before it's going to be repaired. 
Maybe not stupid, just different. Just different. Well, yeah, there are no stupid people, right? It's just people are different. <laughs> and at this way, nature has found a way to use this differentness of dignity or its unfaithfulness <laughs> to its advantage. I have a question here, uh, Natalie. You you mentioned that this process where TDD adds N nucleotides is almost exclusive to heavy chain. Why doesn't the light chain go through the N nucleotide addition process? Oh, great question. So uh, the answer is the expression kinetics of TDT. TDT is expressed earlier in B cells when the heavy chain is rearranging. It's a highly ordered process and only one is happening at a time. In the later part of B cell development, its expression goes down to like almost nil by the time the light chain starts to rearrange. So technically, the only reason no N nucleotide addition happens in light chain is because there's no TDT to do that. So to quickly summarize, the junctional diversity is mostly the result of the formation of P nucleotides when Artemis complex cuts and the addition of N nucleotides by TDT. I'll add something here that at the step where the hairpin has been opened and there are weird overhangs present, there are exonucleases in the non-homologous N-joining complex that randomly nibble away at the open ends. And that is another way the junctional diversity is increased. So let me just quickly summarize that. I said TDT adds random nucleotides at the end sometimes, apart from adding mismatched complementary nucleotides. There are, there are exonucleases that are also at the same time removing random nucleotides towards the end. So it's just a very, very weird process. Oh, there's so much going on here. I feel enlightened now. You are enlightened. <laughs> We're all enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's talk about the complementarity determining regions, which are the hot topics. Mostly when people talk about we, uh, the B cell and T cell diversity, CDRs are the term that mostly comes up, even in papers and in research, research talks. So far, we have reviewed how the VDJ recombination is done and how diversity is generated by the RAG enzymes, the Artemix complex, and the non-homologous end repair joining enzymes, which includes TDT. Thanks to the addition of nucleotides in a random way by TDT, diversity is increased exponentially. It is important to remember that the nucleotides added are not present in the germline, but rather added to the DNA of a somatic cell, which will mean theoretically that the genome of our B cells are different from one another. When scientists went back to analyze the antibody sequences of very many different antibody clones derived from different B cells, they found that within the variable region of the light chain and the heavy chain, there were three distinct regions of hypervariability. That is, there were these three distinct regions where the, the variability in amino acids was very high compared to everywhere else. These hypervariable regions corresponded to loosely folded polypeptide loops at the end of the variable region immunoglobulin domains. They kind of look like fingers, right? If you yeah, see yeah. A, a diagram of that. Yes, yeah, so it's like fingers coming out from an antibody. Further analysis by X-ray crystallographic demon crystallography, I cannot say that word. <laughs> X-ray crystal crystallography demonstrated that these regions make co direct contact with the bound antigen. These regions are called complementarity determining regions or CDRs. Of these CDRs, the CDR3 
of a sequence of the heavy and light chain are more variable than CDR1 and CDR2, with CDR3 of the heavy chain being the most variable in the sequence in the whole antibody. Knowing this, it's logical to think why the addition of random nucleotides in the region where the antibody antigen is bound leads to increased diversity and the ability to recognize almost any antigen in the universe thanks to the unfaithful enzyme TDT. <laughs> so you could say that it's not that the TDT is adding its nucleotides where the antigen will bind, but more, more likely that wherever the TDT uh, adds these nucleotides, it's variable enough that that decides what kind of antigen this antibody will bind to, right? Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. So there was, this was a study by Cabanials and colleagues in 2001 that showed that TDT knockout mice lose about 90% diversity in their T-cell receptors. And I'm assuming TDT may have similar impact in B-cells too. I'll be honest here, I did not think TDT loss would cause a 90% diversity loss. That is too much for me to understand. Well, I mean, what did we say? We had, we had 10 to the sixth diversity before we added the uh, junctional diversity. Yeah. Oh, actually, uh, it's just, it's just it's one order. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. one order, right? No, and to 10 to the 13th before it was 10 to the 6th. So that's that's pretty substantial. Oh, yeah, that is pretty substantial. Yeah, my bad. I was thinking in logs and I cannot think in log. Nobody can think in log. It's it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a plot made by those yeah. mathematicians. <laughs> <laughs> those pesky mathematicians. <laughs> All right. Okay. With that, let's quickly also talk about the epigenetics in VDJ recombination because while this may not be a mainstream topic that people talk about, it's pretty important when we look at what's going on in the VDJ locus epigenetically. Two conditions must be fulfilled to facilitate VDJ recombination. First, the recombining locus needs to move away from the periphery and translocate to the central region inside the nucleus. Uh, wait, why do the genes have to move away from the periphery? The reason is that a lot of our heterochromatin or the more dense chromatin is bundled towards the periphery. Heterochromatin is generally inaccessible for any enzymes to work on. By moving to the center, the VDJ genes can become spread out and they're more accessible as they become a part of the euchromatin, which is the lighter chromatin, less dense and more accessible. Of course, this process is also facilitated by specific chromatin modifying enzymes that are present in the nucleus. Okay, thanks for that explanation. Let me also tell you about the second requirement. So apart from the where the physically the chromatin and the genes for VDJ are present inside the nucleus, for long distance recombination events, the locus for the VDJ must undergo a large scale structural alteration. For example, looping to allow widespread separated gene segments to encounter one another with reasonable efficiency. Once successful recombination has occurred, the inactive allele has been shown to migrate to the pericentric regions or towards the heterochromatin regions. Therefore, in addition to these enzymes that cleave and recombine the DNA, the recombination process is getting assistance from chromatin modifying enzymes too. And I can imagine that if you have your genes, like especially these VDG, VDJ genes that are far apart, sometimes even in completely different chromosomes, they there must be a mechanism that brings them together 
in in physical space so that the these rag and artemis they can they can do their job more efficiently i mean the fact that uh all these 3d changes are happening inside like one little uh b cell is just insane to me i think it was explained that like our dna fitting inside our cell is like trying to fit like a yard of yarn inside a golf ball <laughs> yeah. or something like that it's it's insane <laughs> um anyway so uh i'm, I'm going to tell you about b cell receptor expression because we have just about rearranged our little ig locus probably to death by now but what's the result of all this uh, I mean, the ultimate purpose of VDJ recombination and all these steps we've been talking about is to generate secreted antibodies that can strongly bind to whatever antigen you might encounter. However, not every rearrangement will actually create a fully functional protein. So think about it. If you've got TDT just randomly inserting extra nucleotides, only additional nucleotides, which occur in multiples of three, will keep the reading frame intact. So if, if you think about how you know DNA is, is translated, um, into the actual protein, it happens in multiples of three. So if you don't add additional nucleotides in multiples of three, then you know, you're know you gonna screw up the whole protein down the line. So two thirds of rearranged heavy chains are, are totally out of frame. So you only get to keep one third. How does a cell even know that it's done a good job rearranging these genes? And moreover, if you have two sets of heavy and light gene, chain genes rearranging, you know, one from mom and one from dad, how come the cell only expresses one unique antibody instead of two or four? Well, okay, so the B cell will express the proteins of the antibody on its surface as it rearranges them, forming something called the pre-B cell receptor, which will eventually called the, uh, become the B cell receptor and then the secreted antibody. The expressing B cell receptor can then signal downstream to troubleshoot its own maturation. So uh, let's look at the big picture. The rearrangement of immunoglobulin genes occurs in a highly ordered and regulated manner. So first, randomly, one of the two heavy chain DNA alleles, you know, one from your mom, one from your dad, one of those will randomly begin rearranging. The light chain has not yet been rearranged at this time. As the newly rearranged heavy chain protein begins being expressed, it is shuttled up to the surface. However, this isn't a full BCR and it does need a light chain to actually, you know, have that nice structure. So it needs something like a light chain, kind of like training wheels or something to help it form the receptor. And here's where we bring in something called the surrogate light chain. The surrogate light chain is made up, is made up of two proteins, uh, V pre B and Lambda five, whose only purpose is to help test out the heavy chain and see if it's successfully rearranged. So the fact that we have two genes in our body that like, are just there for like one phase of one cell uh, development, you know, <laughs> to yeah. test out if one protein is working is nuts. Uh, it's a very like energy expensive process. Yeah. But the principle here is that if the heavy chain has been generated successfully and it's not out of frame, it would be able to assemble uh, with, the, with the surrogate light chain and signal with those co-receptors. So if the complete heavy chain protein and surrogate light chains can form pre-BCR on the surface of the B cell, the pre-BCR will signal down to prevent rearrangement of the other heavy chain DNA allele. If it can't form a pre-BCR and signal, the cell will abandon work on the first allele and then go to the next. If neither of the alleles successfully recombine, the B cell just dies. This process is known as allelic exclusion and its mechanism is uncertain, but we know that upon successful rearrangement of one allele, the other is methylated and gets 
balled up into heterochromatin and becomes inaccessible for rearrangement. Ooh, cool stuff. Natalie, I have a question at this point. You mentioned that the B cell must signal in order to confirm a successful heavy chain rearrangement and continue with allelic exclusion of the other allele. But as far as I know, the BCR only signals when there is a cognate ligand available or an epitope that can bind to this uh, heavy chain and the surrogate slight chain. So is the cell hoping to find a ligand there and that hope and like if it finds a ligand, it'll survive? Or <laughs> how exactly is the BCR getting stimulated, assuming it's functional? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, the secret here is something called tonic signaling. Uh, tonic signaling refers to the kind of signaling that occurs in the absence of a ligand. Uh, in this stage of B-cell development, the antigen isn't very important or you might not have even encountered yet. So the intracellular machinery is wired in a way that the BCR can go and constitutively signal as long as all the components are in place. Oh, so this is all antigen independent at this at this stage. That's so cool. Uh, yep. Yeah. So, okay. Now we, we've got our functional heavy chain. Uh, now it's time to go and rearrange the light chain. So remember, there's the kappa and the lambda. Mice always rearrange one of their kappa alleles first, which is why actually black six mice have an antibody repertoire of almost 98% uh, kappa light chain. But humans may begin rearrangement on the kappa or the lambda first. We have about 60% kappa and 40% lambda. It's a lot easier to get a successful light chain rearrangement at this step. Um, probably because you don't have the TDT going on. Um, you can also rearrange from successive V and J regions on the same light chain chromosome. And there's also four possible alleles. You know, you've got two kappa and two lambda to pick from. So um, it, it's a lot less high risk than the heavy chain thing. So if the B cell truly can form a non-productive light chain from all those plethora of rearrangement events, it will die. But uh, that's less likely. Uh, however, once the rearranged light chain is able to join up with the rearranged heavy chain and signal as the fully formed BCR, all Ig gene rearrangement is halted and your B cell has finally made its own individual BCR. You should be so proud of him. The odds that a B cell will successfully rearrange a heavy chain and light chain and make it to maturity is actually 55%. Oh, and I have a feeling that the cell intentionally got rid of TDT at this step because it <laughs> it's just such random enzymes that you want to have a little bit of that in the heavy chain, but not too much because it's just too much to deal with. You don't have that many alleles to try out and <laughs> B cells want yeah, to live. Well, and this is an energy expensive process. Like most of your B cells will die at some yeah. point. You know? um, again, going over that probability. So the probability of generating a functional heavy chain at first try is only one third. And then you could go to the second one uh, uh, that's times two-thirds is the probability that the first rearrangement was not successful times one-third the probability that the second rearrangement is successful and that's 55 percent oh. so uh that's where all that came from according to kubi so all right so now you have your happy bcr expressing b cell who got so much to get where he is today but what if it's auto-reactive like, sure, you want a diverse repertoire of BCRs to fight off invaders, but uh, if you're going to fight yourself at the same time, it's all for naught. So if a BCR is found to be auto-reactive, the BCR can actually signal downstream to initiate yet another round of rearrangement, and this process is called receptor editing. Most commonly, uh, the same light chain allele that was used to generate the auto-reactive BCR is rearranged to bring a new B and J segment. Um, and usually this is sufficient to change the specificity of the antibody just a little bit and fix the auto-reactivity problem. 
However, the B cell can also rearrange uh, other kappa or lambda light chain alleles, or even less frequently, uh, it can actually rearrange the heavy chain, although this is uh, exceedingly rare. It's pretty cool that then again, at this step, the cell is just making minimum changes to yeah. get rid of autoreactivity instead of going starting over because how expensive energetically that process is. Yeah, it, it makes me feel like, you know, grad students, you know, it's really hard to get in and like your first year is really rough, but then after that, you know, you're golden. They're just gonna try yeah. and help you. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very like sigh. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on to membrane versus secreted ID processing. So you now have this beautiful BCR, very variable, uh, hopefully not too autoreactive, ready for action. Oh, we'll have to talk about uh, B cells do have a different mechanism for getting rid of autoreactive uh, cells than T cells, but we can talk about that in our T cell episode, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, we told you earlier that the BCR is, is really not too much different than the secreted antibody. So how is it that the membrane express BCR becomes the free floating antibody that we all know and love? Well, we get to talk about RNA, which is like one of my favorite molecules. Uh, we have the perfect DNA to encode the perfect protein, but the exons within the RNA transcript can also be cut up and pasted together to add a further, further regulatory layer to the expression of immunoglobulin. You might be more familiar with this term as RNA alternative splicing. So unlike DNA rearrangement, which is permanent, RNA splicing helps you make more temporary changes as you need them. So. Also, remember, back to your molecular biology classes, that RNA pol 2 transcribed RNAs get polyadenylated, or they add a tail of A's at the end. So the final exon of the mu heavy chain encodes, encodes a sequence called S, which stands for secreted. This exon codes for the hydrophilic end uh, little bit of the secreted IgM, which is your secreted first antibody. After this exon is a polyadenylation site, or a possible end to the transcript. However, there are also two exons following this, one which encodes a membrane-spanning region, and another that encodes only three amino acids that hang out into the cytoplasm at the very, very end of the BCR, and then a second polyadenylation site or an alternative endpoint for the protein. If the cell needs to make a membrane-bound form, the first poly A site is spliced out, as well as the intron between the membrane-spanning region and the cytoplasmic region, resulting in the translation of a uh, membrane-bound protein. Once the B cell is activated by antigen encounter, um, it will begin to secrete antibody by switching splicing towards the first poly A site, effectively tossing out the RNA sequence that encodes for any membrane-bound parts. Although it's unknown how the shell cell shifts from picking one size splice site over the other, we know that the regulation of these splicing events must be tightly regulated to allow for the expression of the membrane-bound BCR when necessary and to promote secretion of the antibody when necessary. So that's how you get antibody from your BCR. Wow, we started from just VDJ genes and VJ genes, and now we have come to the point where the B cell is ready to make antibodies. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some some caveats here. A lot of things that, a lot of development of B cell also takes place after it has left the bone marrow, which is its antigen dependent phase, but we could talk about that in a future episode. I hope we will. Yeah. <laughs> so let me summarize everything we have talked about. If anybody did not feel like listening to us for the last 43 minutes, this <laughs> is what they should take back from this episode. Overall, the gene rearrangement process is meant to increase the diversity in the B and T cell repertoire, 
the combination of different VDJ segments, the light and heavy chain, and junctional diversity results in this massive diverse repertoire. The pre-B cell receptor consists of rearranged heavy chain and surrogate light chains, and then the BCR has the rearranged heavy chain and complete light chains. The secreted antibody is generated by alternative splicing compared to the membrane-bound antibody. So yeah, we are these are three different uh, three different types of BCRs generated chronologically. First, the pre-B, then a membrane-bound BCR, and then later in the stage, a secreted antibody, which does coexist with a membrane-bound form as well. All right, Natalie, is there anything we have missed for this episode? Oh, I mean, if you want to hit the books and see all the more deep you can dive into this, please be my guest. But I think we've, we've covered a nice summary. Yeah, I was I was very excited for this episode because I have been delaying it, postponing it for a year now. And that's <laughs> in the whole gene rearrangement part, because this is actually very complicated. And I'm glad we got around to writing a good script about it and we have explained this. So hooray for us. Maybe I'm going to see hairpins in my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just regularly see hairpins. Uh, it, uh, <laughs> I think I'm haunted. <laughs> but yeah, in in the next episode, maybe we should take up the TCR rearrangement. It'll, it's very similar with slight caveats, and it'll be a good add-on to our yeah, gene rearrangement yeah. series. All right, everybody listening to us, thanks a lot for joining. We have a website up, antibodies.org. You can go to the website, you can find everything that we do, including our socials, our newly started blog series, our podcasts, our journal clubs, and the career talks. You can also do check it out, check us out on Twitter, do follow us because we're starting to be active there. And if you want a lot of memes, we are there on Facebook. Mostly we (laughs) share memes. That's our main job there. We have it's an antibodies empire. It is an antibodies world and you are just living in it yeah this is the antibody's <laughs> cinematic universe <laughs> acu <laughs> Woo. all right guys see you all later bye bye thanks natalie bye